it's cute and it's fun. Kids as young as three understand it and they love it. And all the way through 17, autistic kids love it. They just can pick up so much of that. So I'm really proud of this book. I can't believe it. It just came out so spectacular. Welcome to the Stuff Up Podcast, a place where we delve into different topics to learn more about ourselves and more about others. And we have lots of fun along the way. On today's episode, I welcome speaker and author of A Million More Kisses, Renee Schultz. A Million More Kisses is a children's book dealing with grief, and we do talk about that. But I just wanted to say... There are some issues that come up on this episode where there is talk about mental health, there's mention of suicide. So if these are some of the issues that are triggering for you, I just wanted to let you know beforehand because we do go through a lot of Renee's past, things that she's had to go through, as well as we talk about her children's book that she wrote called A Million More Kisses. I'm here with children's book author, author of A Million More Kisses, Renee Schultz. Welcome. Thank you for coming on the Stuff Up podcast, first of all. Thank you so much for inviting me. So exciting. (laughs) Tell about the book and tell us the story behind it as well. Um, Well, my story is A Million More Kisses, and it's for kids. It's on loss and grief. It's on dementia. The backbone is on dementia and Geronimo and his little elderly nanny. But the whole thing on loss and grief came from all of my child abuse and growing up my whole life with chronic pain and CPTSD and suicide and everything, and not realizing that all of the trauma symptoms and everything were because I was dealing with loss, loss of identity, loss of everything, and that I was going through grief symptoms. And a lot of people don't realize that grief really is a process of all these different emotions, and we got to try to move forward. And um, I met our self-harming teens on, on Instagram and, you know, they're all the depression pages and the self-harm pages and they're just stuck on that one. They can never move forward, you know? And so just as we're dealing with grief and loss from everything that COVID's brought us, our kids are grieving loss, right? Every time they can't go to McDonald's because they don't have their mask or they can't see grandma. So however, we're showing our kids grief every day, we're teaching them how to grieve. And little Geronimo, our deep thinker, teaches kids the correct way to process our feelings of grief. And that starts with identity and being strong in who we are. Can I read a couple of pages? Yes, please. (laughs) Okay. So your nanny has passed away. They've shared several fun um, traditions through the beautiful New England seasons, and she's passed away. At nanny's funeral, everyone had special stories to share about her. Geronimo learned a lot about nanny. When someone needed a place to live, nanny would invite them to stay. When someone came over for a visit, nanny would cook them a meal. Geronimo realized he must be special for Nani to love him so much. The long winter passed. Geronimo's tongue hung down as he lay in the sun. He missed Nani's wildflowers in the stream. He missed her gentle voice as she read their stories. A warm breeze blew over Geronimo, and he remembered Nani's soft touch. Instead of feeling sad, he allowed the beautiful memories to make him feel happy. He realized that memories are a gift, a special gift left by someone who will always love him. So yeah, I went through a lot of years of not knowing what I was dealing with to get to that place, but you can feel the passion and it was through my faith and the hope that got me through that I wrote my story. 
And I've even had adults say, you know, this is a gift to my soul. It's healed me in places I didn't know I needed healing. <laughs> like 10 years ago, I had kind of a fall. I lost my identity. Something happened. And I lost my identity as a wife, as a Christian, as a woman, as a mom. And I had to get that back and rebuild myself. And so I, so I started my memoir, but it proved really too difficult between like all the clutter and the stuff in my head from just trauma, whatever diagnosis or whatever you want to give it, it doesn't matter. Just I can't put it together. And so this was my way of getting out my story <laughs> in a smaller compact book. So it's worked out really well. And then from that, I didn't even know really anything about podcast interviews or that I could even do that until about two months, or maybe six months before I released the book, I found it online. And I started doing my podcast interviews. And so this is how I get my memoir out, I can speak it. And I've written a course. I'm working on a course, I'm hoping to get the introduction done in a couple of weeks. It's really hard. It's hard putting my thoughts together and using the right words and just making it sound like a big girl thing. It's, <laughs> it's kind of hard, you know, so I'm a Christian. So my faith is in God. And that has a huge thing to do with my identity. I know who I am. I know I have a purpose for my life. And even though for years and years and years, I still struggled with that. It was that core of that faith that got me through. So my course, it goes through faith and using the hope that it brings to build boundaries. And we teach um, coping skills and root causes. And I talk about, you know, some people struggle with forgiving the unforgivable, right? And really nothing is unforgivable. We just have to really find that strength because it's not about the other person and feeling happy that they've been in our path in whatever capacity. It's about us being able to put it someplace safe <laughs> and to process those feelings. And so I use something called merciful indifference. And it doesn't have the warm, fuzzy feelings that you would think of forgiveness. But really, when you have faith in who you are, and you know your worth, you can look at that broken or traumatized or just useless, whatever soul. <laughs> everybody has used, everybody has worth. But when we're looking at someone who's just done something so horrible to us, and us and our worth, we can look at them and say, they don't need to be on my path. They don't need to be on my inner circle, right? They can stay out here and with mercy for what they will probably never know and the joy that they can't feel and the misery that they bring people, have mercy on that. Be humble yourself. And we walk away. So merciful indifference is a, a big way that we can at least begin the process. Wow. And moving forward from that. So yeah, my course, um, it's pretty in-depth. And honestly, it's for people who are really stuck and really, really struggling with moving forward or suicidal or self-harm. You know, it's, it's hardcore. It's for the hardcore people. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. So I just want to get back to your book for a second. You actually took care of your mother-in-law who, who had dementia. Now, did she have Alzheimer's or... Technically, I think sometimes it's just old brain and there are different symptoms and different physical causes for dementia and or Alzheimer's. So yes, I worked in elder care for 30 years and then yeah, the family took care of her from like 2018 to 2019 when she got really, really bad, but she struggled with the symptoms and the lack of being able to live in reality and, and make sense of things. So it's, which everybody does, it's so hard dealing with, you know, these people that they can't argue with them because it's just, they're not thinking properly, you know? And so she struggled with that for about 
at least 15 years, if not more. And it caused a lot of issues with everybody in the family, you know, the typical, everybody, basically everybody goes through it. It's tough. And so, yeah, I put her on the cover. <laughs> Nani is my mother-in-law. And Geronimo is the dog that you have. Geronimo is my little chihuahua. Yeah. In 2017, when I started writing, I had a picture. I took a picture of him. He was standing at the top of our stairs outside looking down. It's in the book. And I said, oh my goodness, it looks like he's saying goodbye. I have to write a book on dementia and saying goodbye. And that's how the whole thing came about. Oh, and so, so the story sweet. was written even really before she got really, really sick before she before we had like a definitive diagnosis for her. So, yeah. Well, and also your book also teaches about different character qualities like patience and empathy and self-discipline and things like that. Right. So you're it's a great story for children because they need to to be able to read this in their own terms, in their own language. That's definitely a helpful thing. Yeah. And so Geronimo and Nani did all kinds of fun activities. They went to the library. She read him stories by the stream. They went to the pet store and bought new pajamas and a bed for their sleepovers and everything. And so when she was sick and all Geronimo could do was lay in the bed and be careful around the tubes and the wires that brought medicine to her body, he had to learn patience and self-discipline. And then she repeats. And so he just sat there and knew he was in for a long day. And it's cute and it's fun. Kids as young as three understand it and they love it. And all the way through 17, autistic kids love it. They just can pick up so much of that. So I'm really proud of this book. I can't believe it. It just came out so spectacular. And I have to shout out to my illustrator, Becky. Her and her husband, they did the text layout and the illustration. They helped me publish it. And I don't know how it would even be here if it weren't for that team. Thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. So. The illustrator is Becky Stout. Yeah, from London. How did you find her? How do you find an illustrator? <laughs> well, the way I started in the first place was I wrote a little tiny um, poem about three or four years ago in February of 2017. I took suicide off the table and I was just kind of poking along. I started my Instagram account, started talking to kids and I wrote a little, just a little jingle on for little kids on how to take care of your pets, even when you're not in the mood. And I put it on an author's page and I was like, what do people think? And some guy was like, oh, you need to write books. And so he started teaching me how to write and all the whatever, the whole craft. And I paid him a lot of several thousand dollars to do like five books. And the first book he did was so horrible. I couldn't even, even as an amateur, I couldn't put my name on it. So I stayed with him a little longer to learn what I needed to until I could dump him and move on to the next thing. And I went through a couple of illustrators and Christian faith publishing. I've paid a lot of money to people that tried to take me or just a guy, an illustrator that was like super inappropriate with me and I had to dump him. It's been crazy. So yeah, just going through the whole trying to find someone, trying to find someone. I ended up on, you know, on the illustrator pages and I found Becky. I loved her watercolor. And um, I was like, yeah, that looks like a good fit for my beautiful, warm, tender story. And um, she got it done. That's amazing. <laughs> I have heard different people talk about publishers and how you have to be really careful. And that's scary. I mean, there's so many scammers out there with so many different things. You'd think a publisher you'd be able to trust, but... And whether it's an independent person or a company or an illustrator or an editor, I've been had by all of them. Just give my story to a children's book editor for $80 and they send it back with mistakes, grammar mistakes. It's like, it's so wow. frustrating. It's really hard. But the point of all of that when I talk about all that is never give up on your dream. Oh, I just happen to be able to keep paying for services. And I'd have to wait a few months and save up some money and try to find somebody again. 
So I know a lot of people really struggle with the financial part of having hiring people and having them help. But um, intellectually, I just couldn't figure out any of it on my own. <laughs> but I never gave up. I never, ever, ever gave up. No matter who I had to go to, what I had to pay to help, I just never gave up on that dream and, and I won't. So for people who do want to and are writing books, no matter what, your biggest advice you have is just don't give up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> don't give up bit by bit, row by row. That's how we make our dreams grow. And um, that's literally, it. you know, when we see ourselves on A and, you know, we're okay, I'm on A and I can't, I'm going to get to Z. It's like, but first you need to go to B and C wants to kick your butt and D is out to get you. <laughs> so you've got to just keep pushing and keep pushing and just little bit by little bit, you'll get there. Wow. You also, so your publishing company is called Woody Knoll Publishing. So did you, you yes. started your own publishing company? I called it Woody Knoll Publishing in case someday I want to publish. I want to learn how to publish. First, I have to learn how to publish my own book <laughs> and then I can. So yeah, I was just thinking big and I'm like, I'm not just going to be a Renee Schultz author. I'm going to be Woody Knoll Publishing. And um, I actually, next to this book, I have a series featuring Wally Weasel and Francesca Ferret and a bunch of amazing characters. And it's the Woody Knoll gang, the Woody Knoll warriors, actually. And um, they start out as the Woody Knoll pals at the beginning of their series. And they go through all this stuff together and they save the forest from a forest fire and they end up being the Woody Knoll warriors. And so I'm hoping to build my empire on that. <laughs> wow, that is awesome. So the, the stories that you want to tell, are they all about learning how kids can cope with different things and yeah mm -hmm. and lessons and life and trauma and however deep they can go that parents will purchase the books and so long as long as there's a market for it I will write it the Woody Knoll the first one starts with Timmy Turtle and he's like um got social anxiety and so we talk about all the symptoms of that he's by himself he's alone and he wants to be included but he's scared he doesn't want to be included and it goes through all of that and Francesca Ferret is very hyper and so while he doesn't like kids calling him weird and shy, he realizes halfway through the book, he's been calling Francesca hyper. So why is that okay? Because he doesn't mean it to be mean. He's just saying she's hyper. Well, people are just saying you're shy. And so it gives kids a new perspective of everything doesn't have to be so bad and so horrible. And look, you do it too anyway. So, and then I have a book on um, Maha Meerkat and Ravi Rabbit. And what happens is at the Woody Knoll, the forest, the forest fire comes and people settle from all over. So I have all these international characters that are all going to come together and bring their cultural differences together. I love how you're you're thinking of all these, like you've got so many ideas, you're so creative. And that that is so exciting. Isn't it wonderful when you find something that you're passionate about and then you're going forward, you're moving forward with this? I've had mental issues. I've had chronic pain since I was 20. So for 30 years, I've had chronic pain. So I went to school, I took a computer thing. I wanted to be like a business office manager thing, make mad money, work in an office. I always looked at myself like J-Lo and I would look like that. And then I'm just in hoodies and sweatpants all the time. I've struggled on the couch with chronic pain. I couldn't have the career that I wanted. I couldn't go for walks in the woods anymore and running and working out like I did when I was a teenager. So for 30 years, I was just like a lump on a log, really with no passion, really. And I would, um, I was involved with church and different volunteer things. But then I would have to like falter off or I could only show up for 20 minutes because I'd be like crippled with pain or whatever. So yeah, once I was able to heal a lot of the emotional stuff and take suicide off the table and realize a lot of different things and then write, I was able to get that creativity going. I didn't even know I had it 
which in fact, when I was like 20, 25, I wrote a story with these woodland creatures in it, Francesca Ferret. And I had it on a floppy disk. It was like 1996. I had it on a floppy disk and I lost it. And I, so I never did anything with it. And then when I met that guy and he was helping me write, I was like, you know, I do have this story. He's like, what is it? And I, and I wrote it out and um, he did the illustrations. That's hard when you have your own ideas and then somebody else, like that's why it's really exciting when you can self-publish, right? Because you get to be, keep what you had in your head rather than somebody else's idea of what it should be, right? Making all my own decisions, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so I hope to do some more books on, I have the story with um, Maha actually, is um, on bullying. And then I'll have the book after that will actually be on abuse. So long as parents are asking for it. And like all all the parent pages and the the kids' um, books pages, they definitely need some deep, heavy, the world is different now and that's all there is to it. And our kids are being bombarded with stuff at a much earlier age. Yeah. What's your writing process like? Do you type on a computer? Do you write? Do you draw little things with what you're writing? (laughs) What do you do? You're going through that. Mostly I use my laptop and I just sit and write and write and write. Even if I have ideas for different stories, I'll give it a quick title, throw in a couple of little facts, maybe a character or two. And as I'm driving around or doing whatever, I will voice record or type on my phone and then fill, you know, fill it in. A big thing is like writing it on my phone and my email, and then I can copy and paste it right onto the story. And um, sometimes I will do, I can start and have some facts and then I'll jump to the end so that I'm like, okay, I know how I want this to end. Now let's make it all unfold. And then, yeah, so it's, it's super, super fun. And when I get an idea and I'm like, oh my goodness. So in fact, the Woody Knoll story started out as a little like 1200 or 1500 word book like this one. And when I showed it to my editor for this book, which is actually Becky, Becky edited A Million More Kisses and she did a great job. So she looked at my Woody Knoll book and she was like, this is spectacular. It needs to be a chapter book. And I'm like, that's reminiscent of my memoir that I can't do like anything more than a few words. I can't keep it together. So I've been working, that whole story has completely changed with all new characters. It's a completely different story now, but it still has the whole fire scene of saving the forest and everything and teaching overcoming. So that's the only part that's the same. So I've been taking about three or four months now on evolving that story. And I don't know if it'll be done in a month or five months, but it's awesome and I can't wait. (laughs) I'm just so, this is my baby. This one's my baby. A Million More Kisses was my breakout of like, my knowledge and understanding of emotions and trauma and helping people overcome and just showing what I have to offer. So now to be able to put out this other series, it's going to be amazing. Your story is incredible. You've been through a lot of trauma. And you said something earlier about how when you were able to work through part of that, you were probably stuck creatively at that time, right? Because there's just so much going on. And then when you were able to move forward, that's when you're you could start being creative again, right? Yeah, your mind opens up and you can think about other things and enjoy other things and do other things, yeah. And that's why, you know, we have to remember that there is more to life than what we're sitting and stewing in. You know, there's so much out there. And even today I was listening to a thing. I was a nervous wreck today and anxious the past few days, just really going, I mean, I know the more you work through things and the more things you do, the more stuff that comes up, right? So I've been doing meditations on releasing negativity and stuff. And I think that subconsciously it's bringing some stuff up because I've had a lot of anxiety this week. So I was listening to this thing today on being calm and everything. And 
and a lot of people already know this, but it's the same thing as if everything on the outside is decluttered, if your room is decluttered, your house is decluttered, your mind is more decluttered and you can think. And it's the same way on the inside, talking about creativity. If your mind is more decluttered, the inner workings of it is more decluttered and you can do more. Yeah. So if you're like stale at work or you can't move ahead or you're failing at school, you know, it's like you got to take care of that crap that's in there because, you know, I call it the inner child, right? The broken or the traumatized or the hurting inner child. They demand to be heard <laughs> and they come out, it comes out as trauma symptoms. And so however you're acting, whatever's going on, you've got to deal with that and heal that, heal that child so they can get in the backseat and you can say, I'm driving now, I'm smashing goals and you're not going to stop me. <laughs> yes, I'm big on that. It's definitely helpful to talk these things through. And so as you're writing these stories out based on things that you've experienced, it's probably therapeutic for you as well to speak your trauma, your past and work through that. It gives you kind of like a control. I wonder if I can explain it. So talking about Maha and pitter-patter and teeter-totter otter, (laughs) they bully her. And she's upstairs in her room and she's hiding in her closet and she's crying. And that's like what I would do. I would go up in the attic and I would hide from my bullies because they would say that I'm coming to your house. I'm going to beat you up. And it was just terrifying for me. And I was physically abused at home too and sexually abused. So I never felt safe. I never had a safe place. And so to be able to talk through what Maha's doing, it brings it all out. It's really hard. But at the same time, it gives you a feeling of control because you can kind of do the ending too. Maha's going to be so strong at the end. It's really awesome. And that'll be helpful for kids who are going through that. They'll be able to see that there's light at the end of the tunnel, that there's a way to move forward, that they can get through it, right? Yeah. And in this book with Maha, um, she meets Allie the Alligator. And it's all based in my hometown. It's all based in where I was living. Allie the Alligator. So one day Maha goes, they had like a day off of school and she goes far, far away where like her bullies won't find her. And she goes and she meets Allie Alligator. And Allie is an old soul and she has missing teeth and scales. And she was bullied before too. Oh, she meets Allie. And together, once their day, once their play day is over, sorry, Maha goes home and she's looking up to the sky and she sees the stars. And she knows that someone is out there feeling the same way too and that she has that friend. And that's what's so important for kids too, is to realize that they are not alone. They're under the same stars as other kids who are struggling. You know, it's not like we're all, I don't know. It's like, no, wherever those stars fall, you know, we're all in it together. And (laughs) that is awesome. You know, it was interesting. I heard you on another podcast, uh, West Virginia Uncommonplace. Shout out to JR. (laughs) Such a nice guy, yeah. I was listening to your story on there and I could resonate so much with, I mean, not exactly. I haven't been through as much trauma as, as you have, but you were talking about your experience within the church and mental health and mental health is near and dear to my heart. I was quite interested in in how you have had to deal with that within the church because I've talked with other friends and family who were like, yeah, we had anxiety, we had depression, we had suicidal thoughts and we just felt shamed within the church at the time. And so I think maybe it depends on the church, obviously, but what I'm seeing is we're talking about it more. A lot of more pastors are more are aware that there's so much more involved than just saying, oh, you're sinning or you're being bad or whatever. And you had a lot of that happen to you. 
Yeah, and it's so true, even at its base. I mean, what does it take for us to come through that but our faith? And so when people are sick, the first thing they go to is like a church or a religious thing or a spiritual thing to get strength, right? And when you're told, you know, stop sinning, it's like, oh, okay, I'll go home. Oh, you know, go home and repent, okay? Dear God, I'm sorry, I'm such a loser and they hate me so much. Like, what? tell me what I'm repenting of. Like, what did I do? I have a big mouth, but I have a big mouth. How? What did I do? I know I'm a little odd and I'm a hyper, like Francesca. I know I'm different and I say stupid things or inappropriate things sometimes or I'm a weirdo or whatever, but how exactly am I sinning? One day I went, uh, this was like 25 years ago. I, um, I wasn't allowed to talk about my mental illness that I was labeled with, which was bipolar. And I had a lot of suicidal and homicidal thoughts and we weren't allowed to talk about it. And well, we have this book and it says that mental illness doesn't exist. It's like, well, I'm going to kill you. I'm here to tell you that it does. Like I am suffering. And so for about three days, I went to my supposed best friend's house and I knew that I was there. My husband was going to be coming home. She's cooking dinner. She's wrapping up homeschooling, but I couldn't be alone because I was going to kill myself. And I didn't have anybody to talk to. I didn't have anything. I was only like 22 or 23 or whatever. So for three days, I went over there and um, on like the third or fourth day, I got a call from my pastor and he's like, why don't you come over? And I was like, pastor wants to talk to me. I'm going to have some time with my pastor. He's going to shepherd me. I'm his flock. And he opened up his Bible to Proverbs and he read to me about how when you overstay a welcome. And it was just, how do you even put that into words? You just can't even put that into words. And so I was definitely just completely alone. I had nothing. And then fast forward, we ended, I ended up getting excommunicated. <laughs> Shocking. I ended up getting excommunicated for like not being repentant or just whatever silliness. And so we, of course, went to another church for 15 years. And there was always comments, comments, little, you know, nasty comments. And it's hard to deal with your inner thoughts and the inner conversations when you've got all this outside crap, you know, and my in-laws were rough with me too. So I had all this outside stuff. And one day I was in Panama on a missions trip and I laughed obnoxious. And a woman said, you're an embarrassment to church and you bring shame to your husband. And all I had ever wanted was for some older woman to put her arm around me and read the Bible to me and explain to me, you know, you know, you always have to have the last word or you, your responses are petty or whatever. We have all these different responses, right? And that's all I ever wanted. And that's all I ever got. So it was at that point, I think it was 2010, um, on that missions trip, it like immediately I had like a a breakdown and I lost my identity. I was like, yep, you're right. I am a loser mother, a loser Christian. I will never add up and I just need to die. You're right. And I started living a double life. I started doing things a lot the next four years that would drive me more to suicide and the hopelessness. And I would sit in my car for like seven hours a day and pound the steering wheel screaming, God, why won't you take it away? Take it away. Take it away. And the second my head would lay on the pillow at night, I'd be like, oh, dear God, you know, please just take it away. I don't want it any of it anymore. Oh, thank you for taking it away. I don't want it anymore. And then I would wake up. And so in 2014, I had a big nervous breakdown and um, I clawed my face off in shame of everything I was, blood. My husband, my daughter was on the stairs screaming and the ambulance came. and. Church needs to understand. Church needs to be able to explain simple things. Like when I went to rehab, my nurses, Holly and Molly, the first thing they taught me was um, everything that's been done to you isn't because of you. It's because of other people and their character and the deficiencies in their character. I'm like, why couldn't someone at church say that to me? Why couldn't someone at church say these, these little pearls of wisdom, right? The Bible talks about pearls of wisdom, right? Why can't pastors and godly women come up to people like me 
women like me and men like me that they see can't shower but once a week or can't hold a job or obviously their family is failing. Why can't they put an armor on and say, you know what, I have a little bit of extra time that I can spend on this soul to lift them up and encourage them. But people are so busy and so self-absorbed and so busy going to their ladies meetings and they're this and they're that. You know, they're so busy doing a lot of superficial things. Not always, but I mean, they're so busy working on their, on their persona, their whole whatever, that they just don't have time. And I remember there was a woman in church and she ended up getting um, that brain shock treatment. She was getting shock treatment for her depression. And I know nobody at church ever supported her, came around her and I prayed for her. I would talk to her online a little bit and whatever. And, but I know that she was all alone. The church has to do better. (laughs) The church has to do better. Everyone's like, I've been saved by the blood. I've been redeemed. It's like, but you're still living out a whole lot of trauma. The way you treat people, the way you look at people, the way you judge people, the comments you make to people and um, all law, right? And we've talked about this, all law and no grace. And that means nothing to someone who's about to die. Yeah, the church. And it's, you're right, pastors are paying more attention. Um, I'm just now starting to get on more Christian podcasts to talk about this. It's a huge issue and people want answers. Yeah. And that's why I think it's important. Like I remember, and this was what it was like in the 80s and 90s. We didn't talk about things. Everyone just kept themselves. You show the best part of you and and that's it. And I remember just thinking, I wish we could just be ourselves. And I, I love that it's coming out more and more where we are talking about being ourselves. Where I remember the first time one of the pastor's wives at one of the churches I went to, and she was like, oh, yeah, I mean, we don't have a perfect marriage and, you know, we fight. And I sometimes struggle with reading my Bible. And I was like, really? The pastor's wife? And I said to her, you know what? That was the first time I felt like a pastor's wife was an actual human being. Because I always felt like they were these holier than thou women up there. And yeah, I love that people were being more real. And I just think it's an exciting time. <laughs> Yeah. And it's funny because you can see I'm I'm open, I'm vulnerable, I'm bubbly, I overshare, <laughs> whatever. So if someone at church is like, oh, how are you? I would let them know. And then I realized when reality hit me and I started to heal, it's like, you know what? Nobody gives a crap. <laughs> Nobody ever gave a crap. I'm babbling, babbling, talking about my week or my issues and asking people how they are. And they, they really just didn't care. They just didn't care. And so I would start to clam up. And that's when the loneliness really hits you. It's like my church family literally doesn't care. They're all for the comments, you know, oh, look, you're Renee. She's either on the ceiling or on the floor. Yep. Thanks for the help. <laughs> thanks for the helpful comment. But it is a good time. It is very definitely a good time. People opening up more. And I think there's a lot of liability. I don't know that a church needs to have like a mental illness class or a program or a group or like whatever, because it can get really exhausting and people can be really overwhelming with their issues and whatever, you know, and church leadership does have other things to do. And then, like I said, the liability just to have someone in the church who might be familiar that wants to take on a group, that's that's exhausting. However, to have some kind of humility to be able to go to someone who's struggling and get the strength up to be able to spend some time with that person, even if you say, I mean, you wouldn't say it, but I mean, if, if you could just do something, just something, just something, you've got to reach out. And what I also tell people too, because it's a two-way street, people at church could reach out to people who are sick. And the people who are sick will still be online on their pages. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. Nobody wants to listen to me. This is what I tell people. If you're struggling, right, how much do we take the negative that people say to us and we let it wash over us and build us and create this horrific, this identity of, oh, I'm such a horrific person. Everyone hates me. And we ruminate it on and we think about it 
and we, you know, we're drinking and doing all this self-destructive behavior. But if someone at church or five people at church are telling you, you're so awesome. How are you this week? I loved you. How much are you letting that wash over you? People who are struggling and sinking and drowning and dying are not letting that wash over them. And they're supposed to, you know, just as responsible for their own healing as the people who are, we expect to come around them and help them heal. Yes. We have to be our own cheerleaders. We have to also find that love within ourselves. Cause no matter how many times people have said to me positive things, I would talk negatively to myself and then take that in and then become a victim. And now it's like, no, I am whatever. And so it, it's very exciting to be able to heal as well, right? And ex- accept it and let it nurture you and soothe you like warm milk, like a warm sob. Let people's loving words, whether you're at the, and I always at the grocery store, I've always told women, oh my goodness, look at your legs. What gorgeous hair. Oh, I love that outfit. Oh, you know, just lifting women up. And my kids are like, mommy, you're so weird. It's like, no, don't call me weird. <laughs> people need to hear any little good thing about themselves. You don't know what people, what small word people can use on any given day. But again, it's their responsibility to take it and accept it and let it start to heal them. Yeah, definitely. And your books are going to be able to do that and help children through these experiences, help them as well to move forward and and learn from that. Where can people find your A Million More Kisses? Where's you have a website? I have a website. The link is there. It's actually on Amazon or barnesandnoble.com. It's really anywhere books are sold. Locally in New Hampshire, it's in a few stores. So that's exciting. But yeah, you can um, reach me on my website, Woody Knoll Publishing, and you can order a special signed copy. Well, yep, just go on Amazon or Barnes and Noble and, um, and you can get a copy that way too. Awesome. Comes in or the ebook. It's hard copy, soft cover or the ebook. So if you just want to spend like $4, I made it pretty inexpensive for the ebook. So you can just go on and, and listen, read it rather. Yeah, read it in there. Well, thank you so much, <laughs> Renee. This was so amazing. And I love hearing. From you, I love hearing your story and I love hearing your process of of the book writing as well. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. There's so much good stuff to talk about. Definitely. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much, Renee, for coming on and talking about your book, which is so amazing, so cute, and such a helpful resource for children on grief, dealing with grief. Renee was mentioning in the podcast that she has a course coming out and it's called Imagine If I Looked Like Me and it's coming soon. So be on the lookout for that. So check out Renee's website. It's www.wknollpublishing.com. That's www.wknollpublishing.com. And I'll send a link out actually for Renee has offered to do a 45-minute soul spritzer session with somebody. So if anyone needs encouragement or they want to discuss setting goals or talk about their trauma and grief, you can uh, you can click on the link and chat with Renee. I will post that on all my social media. Speaking of social media, you can find me on Facebook at Stuff Up Podcast. You can find me on Instagram at Stuff Up underscore podcast. And my website is www.stuffapodcast.com. Be sure to check out my blog on my website in which I discuss the different topics that we talk about and I'll post Renee's um, free soul, free 45-minute soul spritzer session. 
So keep an eye out for my next podcast episodes. I'm actually doing a two-part series talking about emotional abuse. This is a tough one, you guys. And it's something that we really need to talk about a lot more. Because there's so many people who live with an abusive person, but it's so tricky because emotional abuse is not something that you can always tell or that you understand and you can't see it like you do with physical abuse. So check that out coming March 1st, two-part series on emotional abuse. Hey guys, message me on Instagram or Facebook or send me an email at stuffuppodcast at gmail.com. If you want, let me know some topics that you want to talk about. I'm always open to suggestions and I'm super excited to hear from you. All right. As always, thank you so much, you guys, for listening. I hope you go out there and make it a great day.